0: Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. You know, as we continue in our teaching series this morning in the parables of Jesus, this morning we've come to the parable often known as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Sometimes it's called the parable of Dives and Lazarus. And Dives is, is really just a uh, the Latin word for rich. And Jesus, he never in this text gives the rich man a proper name. And we're going to see in a little bit that that is significant. There's a reason that Jesus does not name this man. And And as we're unpacking this parable this morning, there are a few questions that I want to address. And so I'm going to kind of throw them out to you at the very beginning. The first one is this. Why does Jesus name Lazarus? If this is a parable, why does Jesus name Lazarus? Some have argued that this is not a parable, uh, that this this is an actual event. And that's because in all of Jesus's parables, Except for this one, he never names his characters. And and that's true. If you've read any of the parables, they often will start with something like a certain man or a certain king or a certain creditor did this or that. Jesus doesn't give proper names in any of his parables except this one. And why is that? Why does he name Lazarus in this passage? There is a reason, I believe, that he does this. And you know why? We'll see you in just a little bit. Stay with me. Secondly, how can a loving God send people to hell? That's a question that we're going to be looking at this morning. This is if you if you were paying attention during the reading of this parable, you know that this parable is an alarming parable. Um, it's meant to be. It's meant to serve as a sober warning. For all of us. And so everyone, you know, loves the idea of heaven. We can talk about heaven all day long, but for some reason, the topic of hell is a taboo topic, not just in the culture, but also in the churches. I want, I want to ask you this. When was the last time you can remember hearing a sermon on hell in church? I looked back at, at our church and it's almost been four years since we've preached specifically on this topic. So we're gonna touch on, on this topic of hell this morning. Uh, and I, wanna, I plan to discuss why God is indeed loving even in light of there being an actual hell. Lastly, number three, the question that, that I wanna ask is this. Is Jesus teaching that poor people go to heaven and rich people go to hell. It's clearly evident in this parable that there is this great reversal that's going on. In, in verse 25, Abraham says to the rich man, he says, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. You got your good stuff in this, in this world, and Lazarus in like manner got bad things, but he is now comforted here, and you are in anguish. Is is Jesus teaching that if you get good things in this life, that, in, that, that you're doomed, basically, and that if you get bad things, if your life has been difficult this side of eternity, then that's your golden ticket into heaven. Well, these are just a few of the questions that I want to probe into this morning that I want to, to ask and hopefully be able to address with uh, reasonable answers, to. And as we're moving forward in this passage, before we get directly into the parable, we always have to look at context. And maybe you've noticed this, if you've been with us throughout this, this series of parables, you've noticed that Jesus talks a lot about managing our money. Have you, have you noticed that? Uh, if you were just in this section that we're in right now, chapters, we're in chapter 16. If you backed up to chapter 15, that is the parable of the prodigal son. And in that parable, it's about a son who squanders his father's money. Last week, at the beginning of chapter 16, we looked at the shrewd manager. He mismanages his master's money. And then today we have a rich man who pampers himself with his own money. He squanders it on himself while ignoring the needs of those who are right in front of him. And so I think one of the things that, that we want, we, we need to, point out here is that Jesus, it's important that we understand that how we manage our money, that is a good indicator of where our hearts are. And if you'll remember last week at the end of the parable of the shrewd manager, in verse 13, Jesus says this, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve. He doesn't say, you know, it's really difficult to serve. He says, you cannot serve God and money. So how you and I handle our money is an indicator of who we really are serving. Now, if we keep going down, because we're about to get to our parable, I'm I'm giving us context here. If we go from verse 13 that I just read to verse 14, Jesus says, uh, Luke records this in verse 14. He says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. That word ridiculed means literally in the Greek to turn your nose up. If you, you might have a translation that says they sneered at him, they turned their nose up at him, they looked at him with contempt, and so Jesus said to him in ver- to them in verse 15, "You are those who justify yourselves before men. Before men, you've made yourself look good, but God knows, God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight." Of God. So all the way through this passage, all the way through verse 18, Jesus continues to warn the Pharisees that they're loving the wrong thing. He's warning them, you're, you're, lo- you're loving the wrong thing. You're, you're loving money. You are loving your reputations. You're, you're loving your things. They are, they are more important to you, to you than God is. They are actually keeping you from God. Not only are you uh, loving things wrongly, he, if you keep going through that passage, you'll see that they're ignoring the word of God. They're ignoring the authority of God's word. And so because of this, they're headed for destruction. And, and Jesus is saying to them in love, he's rebuking them. He's correcting them. He's saying, turn around. And listen, this is, this is important for us all to hear this morning when, we, when we're talking about love when we're talking about these parables, because in all of these parables, Jesus is crying out to his listeners, listen to me, have ears to hear what I'm saying. Repent if you're headed in the wrong direction. If what I'm saying to you pricks your conscience and you say, that's me, I'm guilty of that, there's good news. Jesus is saying, take heed to what I'm saying and repent. Confess your sin and return to God who created you, who loves you. This is for the church, And this is for those who are outside the church. This is, and today's parable is no exception in this. So let's get into the parable. And at the very beginning, we see that Jesus introduces two main characters. The first one is the rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Now, purple cloth was extremely expensive back in their time because the dye that was used to dye it purple was extracted from what's called the murex, shellfish, the murex shellfish. And I've been told that this shellfish had a purple dye in it that only gave one drop from it. So just imagine how how difficult it would be to harvest this type of, 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 of dye. It would have been very labor intensive, been very costly, very expensive. Only kings and only the filthy rich could afford this type of clothing that was dyed purple. And then to say that he wore fine linen, this reveals that he he wore the most expensive undergarments. Now, this week during my research, I was surprised to find that uh, 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 fine linens can be very expensive. I found that... Uh, One pair of undergarments can cost as much as $1,600. I thought I was paying a lot at TJ Maxx for three pair uh, at $21, but $1,600 for one pair. This is what this man wore every single day. He clothed himself from head to toe in the very best that the world has to offer. And then it says that he feasted sumptuously every single day. That word feasted, it means to, to have a banquet, a, a banquet celebration. If you remember, the, again, back in chapter 15, the prodigal son, <clears throat> the father in Luke 15, verse 23 says, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat. And he uses the word, the same word. He says, let's eat it and celebrate. Let's have a feast. Imagine a table that's just covered with food and feasting every single meal, every single day. He pampered himself. He spoiled himself with gourmet and costly exotic meals. And where did this man live? Well, in verse 20, we're going to see that he lived, uh, he had a gate outside of his his house. It was not a picket gate, like a little picket fence that we see in, in the movies. He lived like royalty in a gated compound that that insulated himself that protected himself that kept him from feeling the sufferings of the world that was right out in front of him every day he took all of what god had entrusted to him and he generously and he faithfully poured it out poured it out upon himself that is the rich man and then there's lazarus he's the second main character in in this uh, parable and talk about a stark contrast. You go from the richest of the rich to the poorest of the poor. Verse 20 says, and at his gate, at the rich man's gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. Now, the word in this, in verse 20 that says laid means to throw or cast aside. So there's this, this imagery uh, uh, or um, a sense that Lazarus was a, a type of man that was just kind of discarded. Laid at the at the gate of this rich man to get rid of whoever was supposed to be caring for him laid him there in hopes that this Jewish man this man is a Jewish man a rich man in hopes that he would obey the Old Testament law and somehow show some benevolence and relieve this man of his misery uh, another thing I want to see in that in, in, in this parable when Jesus uses the word rich and he uses the word poor, these are different words, but they are the same two words that are used in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 to describe Jesus. I want, to, I want us to look at that. It says, for you know the grace, um, that word grace also might be translated as you know the, the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, though he was wealthy, yet for your sake, He became poor, he became a pauper, why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I want us to keep this in mind as we're continuing to move through this parable. Jesus is a rich man, was the rich, not this rich man, but is the rich man, is a rich man, is a wealthy man who saw us laying at his gate, But unlike the the man in this parable, he did something about it. He became poor in order to make us rich. I want us to keep that gospel truth in our mind as we continue to move through this passage. Now, ironically, Lazarus, which is uh, the Latinized form of Eleazar, it, it means God is my help. Think about that. God is my help. Really? That's what Lazarus means, that God is my help? Um, that does not make any sense at this point in the parable, does it? You've got the, a man that could not go any lower in life and his name means God is my help. Where is God in this? If God is so loving, how can he allow suffering in this world? I know that that is a question that many ask. I have asked that at times when, when things have gotten tough in my life. God, if you care about me, why if you're my help, if you are really able to help me, why are you not doing something about my situation? That's where this man is. But his name is, means God is my help. And this man is, is also covered in sores. Verse 21 says that he, he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. If you remember in Mark 7, the Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus begging for him to, to heal his daughter. And he says, I don't want to give what's to the the children to the dogs. And what does the Syrophoenician woman say? She says, well, even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. In other words, Lazarus is so destitute that he looks at what falls off of the table. He looks at what's reserved for dogs. He looks at dog food and says, man, if I could just have that it would give me some relief. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, I imagine that Lazarus is laying there oozing with uh, sores and crusty lesions. Um, I don't know if you've ever had anything like that. When I was in sixth grade, I was uh, helping my parents clean out a bank and uh, didn't know it was covered with poison oak till the next morning. Uh, When I woke up totally blistered, uh, my body was totally blistered. Um, my Asian eyes were even more Asian. They were sh- they were swollen shut. Um, I couldn't uh, I couldn't do anything. I remember my my fingers were so um, had blisters so bad we had to take syringes uh, to drain them. Uh, and I remember them uh, oozing and just being crusty. I don't know if you've ever had anything like that, but but I, I, I want to promise you that this is not something that feels good. Uh, I was totally uh, totally miserable during this time. Uh, but Jesus says that the dogs came to this man who had lesions that were oozing and, and licked his sores. And, and when you think about dogs, don't, don't think about domesticated dogs uh, like that we have. You know, that canine that, that you paid uh, more at the vet now to keep alive, than you paid when, when he came as a puppy or she came as a puppy. I, I remember I was talking to this uh, girl one time who bought a dog, I think for three, $500. And this dog ate one of those prickly um, hairbrushes and it got down in its, its stomach. And it, she told me it cost $1,200 to save that dog. And I told her, I've got you know a shotgun shell that was a lot cheaper than that that would have helped that dog get out of its misery. I love my dog, so don't, you know, don't hate me. I ran over my dog and, and on, oh, no, that's another story. I got to finish that now. She's fine, but that was years ago, and, and we took care of her, and we healed her, and we took her to, did we take her? We didn't take her to the vet, did we? No, okay. All right, this is really bad. Back to the parable. erase. Erase. I hope the sound's not on right now. Yeah, so. So, uh, but if you've ever been in a third world country, a lot of times the dogs run there wild in the streets. And I remember I took uh, years ago, I mean, our our oldest kids were uh, eight, nine. I think Abby was about two years old. and, And we went there and there were dogs in Burma, running in the street, just nasty. I mean, they just, they looked nasty. And, and Abby loves animals. And, I, and I, we had to keep her away from them because just the thought of her getting licked by one of them, uh, what kind of diseases could she have, have contracted from that? That is what we're talking about here. That kind of dog is coming up and licking these sores. And I think what the contrast that Jesus is trying to make here is that these wild dogs show this man more compassion than the rich man who, the rich man who was created in the image of God and, and I also want to be clear that we need to understand why this rich, this uh, Lazarus is laying at this man's gate because ultimately God placed him there because he knew that this rich man had the resources to relieve this man's misery but the rich man proves to be unfaithful with what he's been entrusted with. And you know, when I read this passage, when I read this account, it makes me ask several questions. I wanna give three questions as we're moving through this section. Number one, who is your Lazarus? Have you ever thought about that? Who is the, one, the person that God has placed outside your gate for you to care for? Not for you to, to send to uh, the church, not for you to to send to me or or to, to, to Terry, but who has God laid outside of your gate for you to personally care for? Do you see that him or her, or like the rich man, do they blend in with the landscape? This morning, I'm praying that our eyes will be open to who the Lazaruses are that are outside our gate. Secondly, what does Lazarus look like? It's important to understand if we're gonna identify Lazarus, we need to know what he or she looks like. Jesus describes him actually in in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Now he's, Jesus is having a dinner at the Pharisee's house. Once again, he's with rich people and he says this, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you. That, what? That does not make a bit of sense, this side of eternity, does it? For you will be repaid when? At the resurrection of the just. Seeing Lazarus, And taking care of Lazarus requires faith that there's something in the future. So when we look at what what does Lazarus look like, number one, we need to understand Lazarus is needy. Lazarus is someone in your life that is needy. It could be a financial need. It could be an emotional need. It could be a spiritual or psychological need. You need to understand uh, when you see that person, they can't help themselves. They need help, and you have been given something by God. You've been entrusted with something by God to help this person. Now, we have to also understand that, that Lazarus often can be awkward. Lazarus can be difficult, and, and Lazarus can make us feel uncomfortable, um, Lazarus can oftentimes mentally drain you, uh, they can uh, socially drain you, and here's the reason. It's because they don't have as much in common with you and the things that you are, want to talk about or that, that you enjoy. But they have that need and you can meet it. 60 seconds sometimes with Lazarus can feel like three hours. You know? But if you want to just boil down who Lazarus is in your life, what they look like, Lazarus is someone that you can serve, but they don't have the ability or the means to pay you back in this life. You serving them doesn't get you anything in this life. And God says, Trust me, take care of that Lazarus. And if you're mine, I'm going to pay you back at the resurrection. That's a promise from the Lord. So who is your Lazarus? What does Lazarus look like? Number three, does Lazarus have a place at Reach Life Church? That is a question that I'm asking on a regular basis. This, This is very convicting to me when I think about myself and when I think about our church. Do we want, does Lazarus feel comfortable coming and being amongst us? Or do we want him to just, you know, re- remain outside the gate? Um, not not literally, we may, be, we may say, okay, you can come in here, but we're not gonna really invite them into our life. Or do we require, you know, you're welcome here, but you gotta clean yourself up a bit uh, before you can come in our midst. The question I'm asking is, are we, as a church, prepared to welcome and care for those who cannot pay us back? Or do we just want to be around those who we enjoy and, and those who get us and those who we get? Uh, nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's great to be. I love um, our staff, our team. I, these are people that I love to be around and uh, we're different in a lot of ways, but but it's a joy to, to serve together. There's nothing wrong with that. But Jesus is pointing out here that There's nothing that Lazarus could do for this rich man. It's just a one-way street. And if, Reach Life Church, listen, if we're going to serve Lazarus, then we have got to have the right motivation to do so. And it's not guilt. It is not guilt out of a guilt trip that I'm up here standing here trying to, to make you, guilt you into doing something. You know what what the motivation is? Is is understanding that to Jesus, to Jesus, we are the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and we cannot pay him back. But though he was rich, yet for our sake, he became poor. And now we who have received his invitation are his honored guests at the feast that he has prepared for us at the end of the age. So listen, when we see the weak, when we see the helpless, when we see the hurting, the question you need to ask yourself is, do I see myself in that person? Do we remember, do we realize that that is us before God, covered in our sores of sin? We are Lazarus who is unable to repay Jesus for paying the debt we owed. Do we get that? Do you get that? Are you walking in that this morning? Because until we do, the Lazaruses of this world will not truly be welcomed and cared for in our midst. But if we do, they will be. And I share this to you, to you in, the, in the middle of the sermon because it is so um, natural, it's so human to want to be around people that are like you. But it is godly to love those who can't reciprocate in return. And, and that's the gospel that we preach. So up to this point in, in, in the parable, um, we have an unnamed and self-indulgent rich man, and we have homeless Lazarus. But in verse 22, there's about to be a great reversal. It says in verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. He he probably um, didn't get a proper burial. Most likely, likely, he would have been buried in a common grave with other poor paupers like himself. Uh, at his ceremony, if there was one, there would probably have been few people there. Jesus says, keeps going. He says, and the rich man also died and was buried. No doubt this man had money, so he would have had an honorable funeral ceremony. Uh, It's likely that there would have been a lot of people there to see if they were gonna get anything from this rich man's riches. Uh, No doubt nice things would have been said about this rich man, about how he helped the community and and did all these, uh, maybe not even that, but that he was a a great man and that he's, uh, he's in a better place. Probably something like that would have been said at his funeral when in reality that's not what would have been going on. But what I I want you to notice, this is interesting to me, that once the rich man dies and enters into eternity, Jesus never refers to him again as the rich man. This is significant to me. And this is because he's been stripped of his earthly identity his riches being nothing to him now that he has crossed over. Verse 23 says, And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger into into water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now, some believe and would teach that uh, before Jesus died on the cross, before he rose from the dead, that Old Testament saints, when they died, they went to a place that is called Abraham's bosom um, or paradise. I I, I know that um, uh, when Jesus is on the cross and he tells the, the one uh, um, criminal who repents, he says, today you will be with me, not in heaven, but in paradise. Some believe that there was a, a place where... Um, Righteous saints would go, which would be the, the bosom of Abraham, and while uh, there was another holding chamber known as hell, where the wicked would go. In this parable, Jesus calls it Hades. If you have the King James version, it calls it hell that he went to hell. But in the Old Testament, Hades refers uh, to a place that both the righteous and the unrighteous would go to. But in the New Testament, Hades always is a place of torment, it's always a place of judgment, and it's always a place that's reserved for those who are unbelieving, for those who have rejected God. It's a place where there will be no more arguing or debating or manipulating the evidence. And we need to understand also that both places, they're separated from each other and they're final. They're they're final. And And personally, I mean, if we're talking about, do I believe in Abraham's bosom? Personally, um, I don't know that scripture is clear enough to, for me to just you know be dogmatic about it. Um, it might be true, but I don't want to get us to get stuck on that point this morning, because that's, I don't think that's the point of this passage. The point that Jesus is making is that when we die, when, when we enter into eternity, those who love God will be separated from those who don't? Um, there, Abraham told the former rich man that there is a great chasm that was fixed between the two, and and, and you either go to a place of eternal rest, eternal um, contentment, e- eternal peace. You you go to the kingdom of of Jesus, where Jesus is king, where he is reigning, where he is ruling, where he is calling the shots, where he is continuing to su- sustain life and and give life and or you go to a place of eternal torment where there is no one there to help you, to assist you, or to comfort you. And um, Jesus talks about hell. I've been told that he talks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. Um, He he is the one that uh, warns us in Mark 9, verse 43. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, if, if your hand causes you to uh, love anything more than God, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. In Mark nine forty eight, Jesus describes hell as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And then on the day of judgment, the day that we will give an account for the lives that he's entrusted to us, Jesus warns us in Matthew 25, 46, that the wicked will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Jesus believed in heaven. He taught about heaven and he believed in hell and he taught about hell. He warned us about the fires of hell. And therefore, because Jesus taught about it, Spoke about it. We, as his disciples, must be faithful to teach what he taught. Now, you might uh, say, and this, this is a question which, which uh, does uh, make sense to some degree how can a, a loving God send people to hell? That, that makes sense if you understand hell in a certain way. The, the, the argument seems to go that doesn't love accept everyone as they are? I mean, that is the, that is the, the voice that's being, being um, sent out in our culture. Um, and, it, and it seems to make sense if you don't understand hell correctly. Um, and in order to answer that question, uh, how can a loving God send people to hell, we've got to ask another question. Um, and that is why according to this parable, is the rich man in hell. Why is the rich man in hell? That's important to understand because if you just read this on the surface, you'll, miss, you'll misunderstand it. Let me ask you this, is, is the rich man in hell and, and the poor man in hell? Because Jesus is, is teaching that, you know, rich people are all wicked and poor people are all righteous. And God is going to, uh, according to where you are in life, that determines where you get to be in heaven. and We've got to be careful that we don't take that view. We, we've got to be careful that we do not view that rich people are all evil and that poor people are always victims. The reason I say that is because the scriptures give us examples of both. Job, have you ever heard of Job? He is uh, an Old Testament uh, saint. He was one of the richest man in, it says he was the richest man in the East. And yet uh, he is commended as having been a righteous and upright man, he is in heaven. And just in this parable, Abraham—Abraham Abraham was not a pauper; Abraham was a rich man. So there are going to be former rich people in heaven. What about the poor? Well, the Book of Proverbs teaches us—it's full of warnings about people who who have come to poverty because of the way they have lived their lives apart from God with maybe sluggishness, laziness, foolishness, foolishness with their time. Um, even, Even back in chapter 15, the prodigal son, he was a rich son at one point, but he took his father's wealth and he squandered it and ended up in poverty. So it's not because they are rich and it's not because they are poor that they are in the places that they are in heaven. Well, uh, is the rich man, here's another question concerning that, is the rich man in hell because he didn't take care of Lazarus? Because he didn't give his money to the poor. And that could be a view that you take. It seems to be like, you know, if he had just given his riches to to, to Lazarus, then God would have said, you know what? You deserve to enter into heaven. But the answer to that question is no. That is not why this man is ultimately in hell. Him not caring for Lazarus was simply an indicator of the condition of his heart. Um, If you look at 1 John 3, 16, verses uh, 16 through 18, the apostle John says, by this we know love. This is what love is, that Jesus laid down his life for us. And because of that, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If you believe the gospel, if you believe what Christ did for you, it should cause you, as you understand that Jesus laid his life down for you, it should cause you to lay your life down for others. If you have surrendered to Christ, that should be a fruit of this. John goes on in verse 17, says, But if anyone, two things, has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? The reason that this rich man is in hell and Lazarus is in heaven is because God's love abided in one and it did not abide in the other. Why, why did it abide in Lazarus and not the other? Well, this is where Lazarus's name is very important to understand. This is why I believe Jesus named him Lazarus because like I said, um, earlier that Lazarus means God is my help. In this life, it didn't make sense, but in turni- but in eternity it makes total sense. God is His help. God is, was his help in this life. God was his help, uh, his identity in this life. Lazarus, who had nothing in this life, put his hope, his trust, Fully in God. In other words, God was his treasure and his identity in this life. And so it could never be taken away from him. While the former rich man who had money, he put his hope in money. Money was his treasure. It was his identity. And in eternity, remember last week, the riches have failed him. It failed him, leaving him as a beggar. That's that's the great reversal. The last has become first and the first has become last. And so just to be clear, I want to be clear that God is loving. Um, He does not send anyone to hell who desires to be with him. He's very clear that he's willing to save all who will repent of their sin and and come to him. So those who are in hell, we need to understand they have no desire to ever be with God. And this former rich man, as we continue on in the parable, is an example of this. He he shows, um, when when he talks to Abraham, he shows that that he wants relief from his torment, but, there, but there's no sign in here of his brokenness or remorse for his sin. Uh, if there had been, he would, he would have repented and confessed to God, 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 forgive me for, the way I, for what I did in, in, in this life. He would have looked at Lazarus and said, Lazarus, would you forgive me? Would you forgive me for how I neglected to care for you when it was in my power to do so? That's not found in any of uh, of what he says. Instead, he still appears to see Lazarus as someone who is beneath him, as someone who is is a servant, as as he's still a a means to an end, because he says, Abraham, have Lazarus serve me by by doing for me uh, something I was unwilling to do for him. Uh, have him dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in. Anguish in this flame. This man's heart has not changed. He, he It's not like he suddenly is in hell and suddenly he wants God. He just wants to go back to where he was at before when he had no misery in his life. And those who are in hell, again, we need to remember they are there because they have chosen to reject God. Instead of making Jesus their treasure, their Lord, their master, they have resisted the very one who has stretched out their hands to save. I I heard of a a story of a man who was trying to save a kitten from being swept away by a, a river current. And as he reached out his hand, he took the kitten and the kitten began to bite him and to scratch him and to cause his Hand and his arm to bleed the, the reason this is, is ha- this happened is because the kitten saw the hand, the salvation as being a threat and so what did the cat do? It resisted him and, th- and that's what the Pharisees are doing to Jesus. Jesus keeps l- um, extending his hand to the Pharisees, extending. An opportunity for salvation, but they keep biting him and, and scratching him. Eventually, they're going to put him to death on the cross. And and unfortunately, that's how um, ultimately uh, how people can see God. Sometimes that's how I can see God in my life when He's reaching out to care for me. W- one last thing I want to. Point out, and I think Jesus points out in this parable is that is you might be thinking, well, I want to believe in God. I want to believe in heaven, but I need God to do something, uh, something in my life. Uh, if, if I'm going to believe He's real, if I'm going to put my trust in Him, He needs to do something, something really amazing, something really miraculous. And Jesus addresses that type of mindset at the end of this parable because Uh, Lazarus, Lazarus says, um, I'm not Lazarus. The former rich man says to Abraham, he says, send Lazarus to my my five brothers so that they won't come to this place of torment. Notice he doesn't say so that they can know God. It's so that they won't experience judgment. It's kind of like Scrooge. And, and, and the three spirits of Christmas. Just send them back and, and Scrooge will, will repent. But in verse 29, Abraham says this. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no. Notice he's continuing to reject the word of God. No. No. Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now on the surface, it looks like this former rich man cares about his brothers and, and maybe maybe he, he, he does, but you know what he's really doing here indirectly? He's indirectly saying, it's not my fault that I'm here. Because if I had had just a little bit more information, or if God had done something super miraculous, like sending somebody, somebody back from the dead, then I would have repented. But God, he didn't do anything like that for me. Therefore, I'd never repented. And so indirectly, it's a subtle accusation. He's accusing God for sending him to hell. But Abraham earlier in the parable said, "My my child, you got what you wanted in this life, and it was not God." And he said, and "Abraham's like, y- 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 you know what? Um, the problem with what's with, with the situation is not that you didn't have enough information. It's not that you didn't receive the message. It's that you weren't willing to hear it or to receive it." and then return to God. God wanted you to come to him, but you didn't have ears to hear then, and you still don't have ears to hear. He's saying this in essence. If you didn't believe Moses and the prophets, if you you don't believe God's word, if, if you don't believe what we would call the Bible today, then you won't believe, even if God sends somebody back from the dead. And... The good news is, the truth is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He was buried, and he came back from the dead to prove that he is worthy to be our sole treasure. And so, just as I asked you, who is your Lazarus, let me ask you this, who is your treasure? This morning, right now, where you're sitting, when you walked in this door, Who or what is your treasure? Where, where are you finding right now your identity? Where are you finding your purpose, your meaning? One of the ways to know that is, is if it was taken away from you, you wouldn't want to go on in life anymore. What, what are you hoping in? Can it be taken away from you? Will it fail you when you enter into eternity. If our treasure, our hope, our purpose, our meaning ultimately is not God, then we need to repent. And if that's not who your treasure is this morning, I wanna encourage you to repent today, to come to Jesus and to make him your treasure. He who has ears to hear, let him hear.